Whether or not you're into history, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of History on Fire. I can't believe I cranked out 45 episodes since we started. That's uh, really a lot. Speaking of which, um, at the end of this episode, I will at least briefly mention something regarding the future of History on Fire, since things are going to radically change starting in April. I will mention it at the end of this episode, I will mention it in the next episode, and I don't know, maybe I will even make a special announcement out of it. Either way, stick around, because I want to at least tell you a few words about what's going to happen starting next month. Uh, I'll keep that for the end of the episode. Now, as we get things going, first of all, I want to just give a shout out to uh, Lady Susan Moss O'Donnell, who has been sweet enough to sponsor on Patreon at the $100 level. Now, for those of you guys who um, don't mind the ads and who have not been getting the ad-free version that I give to people on Patreon or who donate via PayPal, here we go with some of the folks who are helping make this episode happen. History on Fire is sponsored by 4hims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care and sexual wellness for men. At 4HIMS you can find well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescription to help fight ED. There are no waiting room, you don't have to wait for doctor visits, you don't need to stay in line. In other words, these guys save a whole bunch of hours and you can do that by just going to 4HIMS.com. You answer a few quick questions and uh, you get your confidential review out of the way and products will be shipped directly to your door. The first month is just $5. We'll get you started for just 5 bucks while supply lasts, and of course subject to doctor approval. Restrictions apply, so we see website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to a doctor or a pharmacy. Instead, go to 4hims.com forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number five. Last time, forhims.com forward slash history and the number five. History on Fire is also sponsored by Blue Apron. One day, all good things come to an end. I'm sure one day at some point in the future I will no longer be sponsored by Blue Apron and I will cry bitter tears because these guys are just amazing. You can create healthy habits this year by learning how to cook at home 
and working with Blue Apron give you that chance. They offer a whole variety of meals, including kid-approved family plans, vegetarians plans, and their brand new WW Freestyle plan. Speaking from personal experience, uh, it's really actually easy to learn how to cook uh, what seem like complicated recipes that I would, you would never think to try before. To start making delicious, bragworthy meals at home without the hassle, try Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get $60 off when you visit blueapron.com forward slash on fire. That's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. History on Fire is also sponsored by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections such as the 100 most popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of History on Fire a free stock like Apple, Ford or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at onfire.robinhood.com. Again, that's onfire.robinhood.com. I want to say a big thank you to Team Evolve Recruitment. These guys are fans of the podcast, and they have been sweet enough to sponsor this episode and the next one. Team Evolve is a nationwide recruiting team located in Southern California. The focus is on building up startups in various industries, and they have clients working on bleeding-edge technology in the fields of cybersecurity, renewable energy, autonomous vehicles, advanced robotics, deep and machine learning, virtual reality, and much more. They have clients and candidates all over the US and Canada. So wherever you are in the Northern Hemisphere, they have elite candidates and companies you want to see. Whether you are a startup or a talented engineer or a recruiter looking to join a rapidly growing team of recruitment professionals, if you're looking for a personal touch to show you your next opportunity or an elite eye in your next hire, reach out to the team at www.teamevolving.com. Again, that's teamevolving.com. I have a funny story about the next sponsor I want to mention. Uh, the sponsor is Magellan TV, and these guys are a new type of documentary streaming provider. So they bring uh, some of the best documentaries from around the globe on one service. Now, here is where the story gets weird. Is I got this request and I checked them out and they look very legit. So I was like, yeah, sure, I can. we can set up a sponsorship. But then, of course, I started looking really deep into it and I started watching the documentaries. And I'm so short on time right now. I'm trying to keep up with the release schedule, make sure I get all my research done and everything. 
But once I started looking at the documentaries they have, needless to say, I got lost in a black hole of watching documentary after documentary because they have so much incredible stuff. They have, well, needless to say, since it catches my interest, a very wide range of history documentaries available. I watch a whole bunch about Queen Elizabeth, fascinating figure, by the way, who gave me some ideas for future episodes. I watch about Tokugawa Japan and what led to the creation of the Tokugawa dynasty. I watch, there's so much good stuff and there's a lot more that I want to check out. They're not just about history, they also have nature documentaries, science, space, you name it, lots of other things. So if you do dig documentaries, check them out. They are really good. The whole service has been built by documentary filmmakers. And I really, really dig them. I cannot recommend them enough. I know I'm going to, it's going to be a struggle to stay focused on my work and not get sidetracking watching them all because there's so much good stuff. They're now compatible with Roku, iOS, Android, a whole bunch of other things. So they have the ability to cast on some of the most popular streaming devices. You can watch anytime on your television, laptop, mobile device, you name it. So you can start your free trial today at MagellanTV.com forward slash history on fire. And seriously, trying it for free with the kind of documentaries they have. I mean, even if you decide that you don't want to sign up later on, try it for free. Just give it a shot. Try them out. It's MagellanTV.com forward slash history on fire. Big shout out as usual to onnit.com and dsgear.com. Datsusara and Onnit have been my sponsors from day one. I cannot thank them enough for their support over all this time. If you can do me a favor and just click on the episode notes and take a look at their websites, see if there's anything remotely that you may be interested in. There's an automatic discount that kicks in when you link through the episode notes, at least for the Onnit site. I don't think for the Datsusara one, but... They have amazing products, I stuff that I use every day. I don't want to take too much time right now because I know you guys are getting angsty about the episode starting. So just check out the website for me and see if there's anything you can use out of their products. And also shout out to Never Tap Gear. They produce awesome knee braces that are great for working out. I use them all the time. And they have also released this beautiful rash guard designed by Savannah M about historical female samurai Tomoe Godzen. So with that, without any further ado, you know what time it is? It's exactly that time. It's time to go set history on fire. After a particularly gory episode, if I recall correctly, it was one of those from the Conquest of Mexico series. I said I would eventually do an episode about puppies and flowers. You know, just to balance things out. This one is the closest I can get to it. It's a non-violent story. Our main character doesn't kill anyone. Despite warfare raging around him, the hero of our tale will be too busy enjoying life in 15th century Japan to join the fighting. In truth, It's more sex, sake drinking and zen than puppies and flowers, but close enough. In some way I'm intrigued with the challenges that this episode poses, because it strikes 
at the core of the dilemma that I've often discussed with the historical podcasting godfather who is Dan Carlin. And the question is, how can we tell a compelling story without high-stake drama? And does high-stake drama necessarily mean violence, war and horror? Or can we build a fascinating narrative about something that does not focus on these elements? There are quite a few things that I disagree with historian hours in with. But this is a beautiful quote, and it speaks exactly to what I'm trying to do here. So let me read it. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents, and to live now, as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is in itself a marvelous victory. I love this quote. It's perfect. It, it captures exactly what we're trying to do with this. It captures exactly what we had discussed with Dan. And uh, and I, I dig this, you know, this notion that the traditional history that we always read is not the only kind of history that we can focus on. That there's uh, some... It doesn't always have to be about warfare and bloodshed and all the classic things that we normally discuss when talking about history. Now, before we go further... A warning is in order. If you are uncomfortable with sexual themes, this is not the episode for you. In some way, it's funny to even have to give this warning. I mean, just about every other episode of History on Fire deals with some ultra-violent themes, whereas this is the least violent episode I've ever done. But I have lived in the US long enough to realize that plenty of people are much more comfortable with graphic violence than they are with sexuality. Take video games, for example. Most parents voice little objection if their kids play the typical video games, where, you know, the ones where you mow down your opponents with machine guns or chop their heads off with samurai swords. You know, boys will be boys, they believe, and the little blood and gore won't do them much harm. But whereas ultra-violent video games are usually considered appropriate for teens, any kind of nudity, even within otherwise mellow, non-violent games, have parents jumping up and down screaming for the strongest possible restrictions against this blatant attempt at corrupting the minds of their kids. I don't know if it's just me, but this does seem a little bit more than counterintuitive. After all, which one would you rather see coming at you in a dark alley? 
AK-47 wielding ninjas or boobs? In any case, point being, you have officially warned, in his writings, the hero of our tale gets fairly graphic when it comes to the juicy encounters of naked bodies. And speaking of warned, I'm almost certain that some of you will love this guy and find a new source of inspiration and some of you will hate his guts. Having said that, let's get the ball rolling. Last thing I see before I sleep, and the first thing I see when I wake up, is a beautiful painting created by my love, History on Fire editor and producer Sovanna Riem. In this painting we see there's a naked woman who's putting wine or some other kind of alcoholic beverages over her body. And there's a Zen monk drinking the wine as it falls from her breasts. I'll probably use this image as the episode cover at historyonfirepodcast.com for this particular episode. Now, the Zen monk represented in this painting is E.Q. Sojun, who was born in 1394 and lived until 1481, during a crucial time in Japanese history. I was originally introduced to the story of E.Q. by Tom Robbins, who is my favorite novelist ever. By the way, just to clarify, Tom Robbins, not the same thing as Tony Robbins, two very different people. In any case, Tom Robbins has been a huge influence on me. So much of his work for me was uh, counter to the image of the suffering artist, counter to this feeling that I somehow internalized since I was a kid that had me convinced that great depth equals some tragic destiny. In Tom's work, I found the realization that depth and happiness could go hand in hand, and I'll forever be grateful to him for that. And also, while we are at it, rarely have I seen examples of healthy long-term relationships, and seeing him and his lady Alexa also was very formative for me, because they were kind of a great role model for what relationships could be. In any case, long story short, I worshipped Tom Robbins. And at one point I was reading a collection of his articles in an anthology called Wild Ducks Flying Backward, when I ran into a passage in which Tom mentioned that if given a time machine, he would like to, I quote, to go to, I quote, 15th century Japan, where I might hit the meditation mat, the mountain trails, the sake bars and the brothels, with my idol E.Q. Sojun. So, I love Tom Robbins, I grew up reading about Zen Buddhism and I didn't know who is this Zen master loved by Tom. I immediately hit the library and looked for anything I could find in English about E.Q., which admittedly wasn't really much. Author R.H. Blythe called him the most remarkable monk in the history of Japanese Buddhism. The EQ emerges from the sources. It's pretty much what would happen if an X-rated version of Bugs Bunny was a Zen master. A trickster figure who played pranks on the powerful, on dogma and on traditions. Speaking of sources, 
The sources on EQ range from his own words, since he left behind a lot of poems and other writing, to all kinds of anecdotes of uneven reliability. The major source is a biography of EQ created by his disciple Bokusai, from first-hand information. The only issue is that Bokusai had his own agenda for how he wanted to have EQ remembered, so he edited and omitted some events in EQ's life in a way that probably EQ himself would not have approved. There's also a collection of stories about EQ from the Tokugawa era. Well, Tokugawa era is, by the way, between like 60, early 1600s to 1868. Now, personally, I enjoy these stories a lot, but the line between history and completely fabricated legend gets thin in these ones. But luckily, as I mentioned, we also have lots of EQ's writings, both in terms of poetry and prose, and these allow us to get a more direct glimpse into the man's life. The most famous of these is an anthology of his poetry called Kyonsho, or the Crazy Cloud Anthology. Over 1,000 poems in Chinese, which was the language of choice for the literate in Japan at this time. The period of Japanese history we'll be looking at is the Muromachi period, which goes from the 1330s to 1573. This was a time of artistic renaissance, but also civil war, starvation, plagues, riots, revolts, destruction of the capital, collapse of central authority, and, and Ikkyo. Ikkyo was born in 1394 under complicated circumstances. Ikkyo's father was the emperor of Japan, Emperor Go Komatsu. It's worth remembering that at this time the emperor had minimal political power, was mainly a figurehead, and was really just a puppet in the hand of the shogun, shogun being the military ruler who held the real power. Well, even that gets more complicated than this, as we'll see, but at least in theory that's how the simplified version goes like this. For over half a century there have been clashes between the senior imperial line that had fled south and the junior imperial line, also known as the northern line, which was supported by the Ashikaga shoguns. This division had started in the early 1300s, when Emperor Go-Daigo had tried to take power away from the shoguns. He had failed, and as a result he was exiled to an island while a new puppet emperor was uh, set up, thereby creating a division within the imperial family between the northern and southern branches. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the background history because there's a lot, and it's highly complicated. Just for our intents and purposes, the bottom line is that for a good chunk of the 1300s, there were two people claiming the title of Emperor of Japan. The two courts, Southern and Northern, were divided for about 60 years, until they were finally reunited in 1392, with Shogun Yoshimitsu arranging a peace between the two factions. And the northern claimant to the title, Ikkyu's father, Gokomatsu, being acknowledged as 
the emperor of a unified throne. So the 16-year-old Go Komatsu decided to enjoy some celebratory times for a while, which apparently included sex with a lady-in-waiting who was of southern lineage. According to some accounts, she was even the daughter of the south's best general. And this lady had been asked to live at the palace as part of the peace treaty. Some sources euphemistically describe their affair as the emperor's, I quote, showing her favor. Well, the result of him showing her favor was that she got pregnant. Usually the emperor's son, even by a concubine, could be eligible for the throne. But the fact that the emperor's first child had blood from the politically defeated side was a definitely a bit of an issue. It's pretty much unheard of for a male child born from the emperor to be treated as illegitimate. But in this case, this birth threatened the peace recently created. The fear of return to power of the southerners led to Ikyu not being recognized as a son by Emperor Gokomatsu. In some versions of the story, the courtiers with the shogun's blessing push Ikyu's mother, the royal concubine, out of the palace. In some other version is the jealous empress who accuses her of being sympathetic to the competing southern political faction. As Sonia Arnsen, who wrote a master thesis about EQ, writes, I quote, During the dispute between the northern and southern courts, she was accused of having treasonous intentions toward the emperor, and so was banished to a lesser dwelling in Kyoto, where EQ was born. So the end result was that his mom was unceremoniously kicked out of the palace, and Ikyu was born on New Year's Day 1394 at a house on the outskirts of Kyoto that belonged to some of her relatives. Despite his noble ancestry, Ikyu was born as a bastard, just like Jon Snow. But as I will see, rather than being sent to the wall to fight the White Walkers, he was sent instead to a Zen monastery. As a matter of fact, he, he only got to live with his mom in the suburb of Kyoto for just a few years before she made the hard choice of sending him off to Ankokuji, which was a local Zen monastery, when he was only five or six years old. Some sources suggest this was done because she had no money to care for him. Others hint that this was done for his physical safety, since his mom was afraid that either the shogun or some northern partisans may decide to kill him, just for the sake of eliminating a possible pretender to the throne, and a possible pretender who was tied to the southern lineage, which made it even worse. If he became a monk, on the other hand, they may decide he would represent no political threat and they would let him live. So, moral of the story, for EQ Zen was not some spontaneous calling. Rather, he stumbled upon it as an alternative to being murdered in infancy. And given that choice, Zen training didn't seem so bad after all. 
Now, needless to say, this was not the most fun-filled scenario for a little boy. Iki already had no father in his life, and now he was going to suffer being separated from his mom at such a young age. But clearly, this prospect was still more appealing than having angry assassins slicing you to pieces. As a novice, Iki's head was shaved and was given a new name. Ikkyu, by the way, is not going to be his name until he's 24 years old. It's going to be a Buddhist name that he will pick up. He'll go through a few names as a kid. There was this habit that you would have some kind of baby name that you got, then you got, he got a new name when he got into the monastery, Then, but we'll use Ikkyu for simplicity's sake, so we don't keep switching. Many elite families placed all but their eldest kids in Zen temples. Education was done in Zen temples and focused primarily on Chinese literature and Buddhist sutras. The priests were some of the best trained people in Japan in terms of knowledge of Chinese language, which was a must for any cultured person in Japan. All serious writing at the time was done in Chinese. Why that is, is funny. I mean, the relationship between Japan and China was kind of similar to the relationship between Rome and Greece. You know, the educated Romans often wrote in Greek and borrowed much of their culture from Greek roots. For that matter, even when they became much more powerful than their cultural influencers. Similarly, Japan borrowed so much of its culture from China. You know, the... The actual Japanese language, the vernacular, was used mainly by women, was used uh, in kind of pulp fiction, in love letters. But for serious writing, people use Chinese. Ikki would eventually become one of the very few scholars not to look down on using the vernacular. But for the time being, he learned how to write poems in Chinese and was quite brilliant at it. During those years, he would remain in contact with his mom, but he would never live with her again. By the time he was 13 years old, he moved to the oldest Zen temple in the capital and studied there for a while. He, he picked up the habit of uh, writing a poem every day, which is something that he would do for the rest of his life. Now, despite some rather serious bouts of depression in this joyless environment. It became quickly clear to his teachers that EQ possessed an amazing intellect and that his literary talent and grasp of Zen were unparalleled. Some of his early writings indicate Ikkyu's life was colored with a heavy sense of melancholy because of what had happened to his mom. Some of these early poems that have been preserved were a lot of them were about his mom's exile, and so his uh, childhood experiences had clearly left some scars in his personality. Before we go further, maybe I should stop here for a minute to explain a little something that I've been taking for granted so far. I mentioned how Ikkyu was placed in a Zen monastery, but I haven't really explained anything about Zen. So let's take a time out from the details of Ikkyu's life, and, and let's tackle Zen for a little bit. Now, Buddhism as a whole is primarily divided into two major schools, the Mahayana school and the Theravada school. 
and Zen is one of the many variations of Mahayana. There are all sorts of legends regarding the origin of Zen, but if we want to stick to more or less proven historical facts, Zen was born when Buddhism was brought to China, and there it was mixed with native Taoist beliefs. A school known as Chan Buddhism originated in China around the 500s common era, and the same school was named Zen, when he reached Japan around the 1100s. So even though technically Zen is a subdivision of Buddhism, the similarities with Taoism are endless. In many ways Zen is Taoism, in Buddhist clothes. One of the ways Taoist influences on Zen are manifested is a disdain for purely bookish knowledge and an emphasis on meditation and direct experience. In this sense, Zen is less about learning Buddhism than it is about becoming a Buddha. In the Zen view, enlightenment is not a product of learning proper doctrine or having enough faith. Much in the same way as the words on a menu don't feed you, Buddha's words, or anyone else's words for that matter, can't bring enlightenment. Words, philosophy, theology. These things are no more than a map for a journey, but they are not the journey itself. Enlightenment, on the other hand, is completely beyond words. It's a state of consciousness. It's an ability to be completely present in the moment. To get a good example of the difference between theory and action when it comes to Zen, all I have to do is to look first in the mirror and then across the room from me. From a purely theoretical standpoint, I probably know more about Zen than 99% of human beings, since it would be hard to find too many people who have read more than me on the topic. But for all my reading, my mind is always spinning a million miles an hour, and my emotions rule me more often than the other way around. Entering our discussion, my lady, Savannah Riem. When I first met her, she had barely even heard of Zen, but she could spontaneously do the kind of stuff that people who spend 30 years in a monastery hoping and usually failing to achieve do. Case in point, just this past December, Savannah flew to Malaysia to fight for Asia's biggest MMA organization, One Championship. Any normal human being would at least struggle a bit under pressure. You know, thousands of people gather at a stadium and millions on TV and on the net watching you step into a cage and battle it out against someone who has spent years of their life training to be more effective in knocking your head into the third row. That's some unnerving stuff right there. And in this particular case, her opponent was five inches taller and had six times as many matches as her. So under the circumstances, pretty much anyone on earth would at the very least be a bit nervous, if not outright scared. And instead, there she walked out with her heart rate not going up one bit, and with the biggest smile on her face, just looking like a kid going to Disneyland rather than someone about to fight. I can safely say I've never met anyone with such an innate ability to be completely in the moment as she is, and no one half as able to flow with life without being weighed down by 10,000 extraneous thoughts and preoccupations. 
No one can come even close to that emotional balance. Certainly not me. You know, all my, oh, I've read this and that about Zen. Yeah, that's great. That doesn't help if it doesn't translate into actual behavior. And from a Zen perspective, the things that she's able to do are infinitely more important than being an expert in Buddhist philosophy or being knowledgeable about nuances in doctrine. To be fair, the perception of Zen in the West doesn't always reflect the reality on the ground. Most Westerners who become fascinated with Zen Buddhism are intrigued with its reputation as an anti-authoritarian, freedom-loving, individualistic tradition. Books by excellent writers like Alan Watts popularize an image of Zen as a very relaxed, go-with-the-flow type of religion. But even a brief visit to a typical Zen temple is enough to make us painfully aware of the difference between hype and reality. Life in real Zen temples, in fact, is often so structured, regimented and heavily regulated as to quickly dispel the romanticism created by much of the literature about it. Far from being a hippie rendition of Buddhism, Zen discipleship can be demanding and severe. Disciples are broken and rebuilt in the training hall. Training is supposed to help lose one's ego and learn Zen in a contest where all worldly values are discarded. Repetitive actions to this, you know, part of the characteristics of the training involve repetitive actions to destroy individual will, eliminate any kind of sense of purpose from uh, one's actions, lots of hard work, long hours of sitting cross-legged in meditation. They employ a routine designed to calm the mind and the emotions. You know, a lot of action, little room for thinking. Zen in Japan is much more institutionalized than it is in China. The trainees regularly have fairly little food, also little sleep. In many cases, they don't allow more than four or five hours of sleep, which is really not much for the average human being. The idea being that the people being trained are to become malleable, to be able to adapt to situations, to, um, in some way, not too different from military training, and to become efficient and gain a one-pointed ability to act. Three times a day, they have face-to-face confrontation with their teacher, and The teachers usually are fairly severe, don't socialize, and they are separate from others. Now, this, of course, there are 10,000 exceptions to this. I'm just painting a more mainstream version. There are clearly exceptions case to case. In any case, back to Ikkyu. In 1410, he moved to a temple under a teacher whose specialty was sutra chanting and Confucian doctrine, and neither of these things were particularly dear to Ikkyu, who was too much of a free spirit to thrive on a regimen of strict rules and equally strict morality. Not much is known about his time there, except for one anecdote. It is said that the shogun himself came there to inspect a painting, The shogun apparently was a good painter himself, and he appreciated art. And the young Ikkyu, at the time he must have been around 16 years old, gave him a scroll, but remained in a higher position, which 
according to court etiquette, was considered an insult. So an attendant tried to take the scroll from Ikkyu, but Ikkyu just stared him down. Was he still sore about the political machinations that led to his mom getting kicked out of court? Something else? Is this a made-up story? Well, either way, it points to Ikkyu's rebellious nature and his fame for his contempt for authority, which are characteristics that will mark the rest of Ikkyu's life. After a few more unsatisfactory and uneventful stays at some of the more mainstream Zen temples, Ikkyu chose a more unconventional path and became the only disciple of Keno Soi at a temple on the shores of Lake Biwa, just a few miles from Kyoto. The fact that Keno had no other students already tells you that he was not interested in running a large temple and climbing the steps of the Zen hierarchy, which, which is a contradiction of terms, except it's very much a real thing. Keno loved living away from monastic politics and people in general, preferring to be always close to nature. Part of the reason why he had no other students is that he refused to grant anyone a Certificate of Enlightenment, also known as Inca. Certificate of Enlightenment, just saying those words feels so weird. I mean, what does that even mean? Zen in those days had adopted a custom that required those to be recognized as abbots and masters to be properly certified by a teacher. In other words, an enlightened master had to certify that a student's office had achieved enlightenment in order for this to be officially recognized. If this sounds ridiculous, pretentious, and ultimately contrary to the very spirit of Zen, probably because it is. Keno, the man Ikkyu had chosen as his teacher, certainly thought so. To him, the Certificate of Enlightenment was the perverted invention of a pseudo-spiritual bureaucracy and had nothing to do with real Zen. But of course, this meant hardly anyone wanted to study with him, since he would never give them the stupid piece of paper they would need to have a quote-unquote career in Zen temples. In some way, you can think of it in terms of modern universities. You know, how many people would attend universities purely because they want to? If universities gave you no official diploma that could help you get a better job and make more money? Probably not too many. So by picking Keno as a teacher, Ikkyu was raising a middle finger to the notion of turning his Zen practice into a career. He studied with Master Kano from the time he was about 17 years old to when he was around 21 years of age. Right around that same time, while Ikkyu was living in Spartan conditions as the lone disciple of an eccentric Zen master by the lake, his half-brother Shoko became emperor of Japan when their father decided to retire from active duty. Talk about a contrast. One brother was sitting on silken pillows as the emperor of Japan. The other was living in a hut with only the bare necessities. Shortly before dying in 1414, Keno told Ikkyu that his grasp of Zen was so advanced that he had nothing left to teach him. 
which was sweet, but this compliment wasn't enough to console Ikkyu when the old man finally died. Keno was the only real father figure Ikkyu had ever had in his life. You know, rejected by his biological father and now seeing his spiritual father dying, Ikkyu was so heartbroken and depressed that he decided to let himself drown in the waters of Lake Biwa. If things proceeded from here as planned, our biography of EQ would be a bit of a letdown and our episode would be already reaching its end. But this is not the case. Fate stepped in. In some versions in the form of a servant sent by EQ's mother who was afraid her son would do something stupid after his teacher's death. In this version, the servant arrived to check up on him just in time, bringing him a letter from from his mom begging him to stay alive for her, if nothing else. In other versions, EQ simply had a vision of his mom that reminded him of how devastated she would be if he joined the fish at the bottom of the lake. And this sapped his enthusiasm for offing himself. But now he had agreed not to remove himself from the gene pool, EQ still had to figure out his next steps. This made him take a hard look at the state of Zen in his times. In some ways, the popularity of Zen in Japan had been its undoing, since Zen turned into a fad for many people. And the real thing was becoming progressively more rare, as the Zen world was getting increasingly populated with wannabes more interested in form than substance. The other problem was the success turned Zen temples into bureaucracies concerned mainly with political power. Life in Zen temples during Ikkyu's times was very institutionalized and according to Ikkyu himself quite corrupt too. We will consider the problem of corruption at land during, at some point during this series, but even assuming corruption was not an issue, the institutionalization of the Zen experience certainly was. Almost unfailingly, innovative ideas, revolutionary ideas, ideas that are full of life, don't survive within institutions. There's a reason why institutions rarely ever produce creative geniuses. It's because creativity thrives where life is chaotic, beautiful, and a tad dangerous. In regimenting an experience and trying to make it replicable, Institutions tend to weed out the very element that made that experience powerful in the first place. And even Zen was not immune from this process. As E.Q. wrote when he was a teenager commenting on the state of Zen, religious pontificating, mouth Zen, and fame-hungry priests. I'm ashamed of such people. But E.Q.'s interest was piqued by a Zen master named Kazo Soton, who had the reputation for being the strictest teacher around, but also for an uncommon degree of integrity. Like his previous teacher, Kazo dwelled on the shores of Lake Biwa. He had been trained at Daitokuji, one of the main Zen temples in Kyoto, which was also the emperor's favorite. But he preferred operating his own branch temple outside of the city, among pine and cedar forests, and would only visit Daitokuji for formal ceremonies. 
Casos Retreat was located near the narrows of the lake, an area that was infested with fisherman pirates who attack rice barges bound for the wealthy esoteric Buddhist center atop Mount Ihei. None of this bothered Ikkyu a bit, who applied for admission in 1415 when he was in his very early 20s. Pirate infested lake, stuck in the woods in the middle of nowhere, eccentric master with a reputation for severity. What are we waiting for? By the way, in order to properly absorb the previous question, you have to picture them pronounced with the voice of Gimli from Lord of the Rings. Now that the obligatory Lord of the Rings reference is out of the way, let's consider Ikkyu's dilemma. The problem was that most smaller country temples didn't want to have to feed another disciple, particularly one who had no money and uh, had, had a recent suicide attempt on his resume. Plus, Caso was of the school of thought that you don't teach just anyone who wants to learn. Prospective students have to demonstrate they really want it, otherwise there's no point wasting time on them. So when EQ showed up requesting to be accepted as a disciple, Caso didn't even acknowledge his presence and didn't have his attendants open the doors. EQ, however, didn't give up. With the proverbial hard-headedness that characterized him, he just spent all day outside waiting for an audience. And the doors still didn't open. So EQ spent the entire next day outside, and the doors still didn't open. This kept going on day after day. At night, Ikkyu would sleep in an empty boat, and by the time the sun rose, he stood in front of Kazo's retreat all day, waiting to talk to someone. And nothing would happen. No one would receive him in the morning, not in the afternoon, and not in the evening. Now, how much of this would you go through before you decide it's just not worth it? Ten minutes? An hour? Four hours? A day? Ikkyu had made up his mind beforehand. Didn't matter to him how long it would take for the doors to open. And it didn't even matter if they would ever open at all. He had chosen that he would stand outside of Kazo's place until either they would let him in or he would die. In some way, this attitude reminds me of the practice of some Lakota warriors who would stake their sash to the ground during battle, and they would fight without the option of retreat until they were either killed or some friends came to cut them loose. Similarly, Ikkyu was determined to die there if that's what it took. Initially, his determination didn't win him any friends. Annoyed by this persistent guy at his door, Kazo sent his senior disciple, a man named Yoso, to chase him away. Yoso is actually a rather important character in our story, so keep him in mind. Yoso had studied under Kazo for over 20 years by this point and in other monasteries for another decade or so. He was his drill sergeant to enforce Kazo's will at the retreat, and he was about 20 years older than Ikkyu at this time. During this first encounter with Ikkyu, Yoso finally opened the door, not to welcome the exhausted Ikkyu inside, but to pour a bucket of dirty water on him. 
Ignoring him clearly had not been enough to dissuade him. Maybe abusing him would do the trick. But no, good old DQ was relentless and made it clear that he would not take no for an answer. So eventually, after five days of standing outside, the doors finally opened and Caso invited him inside for an interview. Shortly after their initial chat, Caso allowed DQ to join his retreat and the two of them hit it off famously. Caso quickly realized that there was something special about EQ. At a time when EQ was emotionally highly unstable, Caso became his anchor. For the next nine years, EQ lived at the monastery, even though conditions weren't exactly a barrel of monkeys. Day-to-day life in the temple was tough and very spartan. Food was minimal. In winter, only a single layer of paper protected those inside from powerful winds that originated in Siberia. Because that's what the walls were made of, literally like sheets of paper. At night, often icicles would form on their thin blankets. Not exactly the kind of lifestyle that most spawns of emperors come to know. To help keep things afloat, Iki would often walk all the 20 plus miles to Kyoto, where he would stay for a few weeks working at a doll shop, using his skills with the brush and painting toys for aristocratic families. He also created kimono designs and painted them. Alternatively, he would also sell incense or pick up some other random job until he had enough money to last him for a while. In terms of his training, in addition to a heavy regimen of city meditation, another Zen tool was the use of koans. Koans could either be stories, riddles or dialogues, usually appearing to have a paradoxical quality and no logical solution. Upon being given a koan, the Zen student is supposed to spend days, weeks, months or even sometimes years trying to solve something that cannot be solved through reason alone. Author John Carter Covell describes koan in this way. The whole process is intended to knock the student out of any intellectual constructs and propel him in a world beyond logical categories. IQ seemed to prefer meditation. Koans were alright, but meditation was his thing. In summer, he would borrow a small fishing boat and meditate while drifting on the waters of Lake Biwa. His first awakening happened when some blind musician playing a four-string Chinese lute stopped by the temple. As the musician played a ballad about the tragic story of the mistress of the military commander of the Minamoto clan from centuries past, something struck a chord in Ikkyo. It's very likely that the song reminded him of his own mother's fate. As author Carter Covell puts it, when the sad story of long ago was sung by the blind musicians, the whole poignant, dreamlike quality of life so overwhelmed EQ that he lost his individual ego consciousness. At this time, EQ had been working on a particular koan, and in the middle of the song, the solution appeared to him. It is after this particular occasion and to mark his progress that Caso gave him the name EQ by which he would be known for the rest of his life. According to some sources, before this he was named Shuken, um, 
in any case, the meaning of the name EQ was something like one pose, and he referred to human life being a simple pose within the context of eternity. EQ experienced an even deeper shift of consciousness in 1420, when he was 26 years old. It was a night in May with rain clouds passing overhead, and EQ was in a boat doing his floating meditation thing in the lake. Much like it happened on the first occasion, it was sound that helped EQ. The quiet of the night on the lake was disturbed by the cry of a crow, and that was enough to trigger something in EQ's state of consciousness. Now, this description, you know, the guy is on a lake, a crow cries out, and suddenly something dramatic happened in EQ's consciousness, this is clearly will drive nuts the ultra-logically-minded among us. I mean, how does a crow crying out suddenly opens the door to enlightenment? How does that make any sense? What's the cause and effect here? And what exactly is enlightenment anyway? Famous Zen author D.T. Suzuki used to say that enlightenment is like everyday consciousness, but two inches above the ground. As pompous as the term may sound, enlightenment is not really some mystical insight beyond time and space, some ultra-spiritual concept or some faraway dimension wrapped in clouds of mystery, something with no connection to the most mundane aspects of daily life. In some way it goes back to the experience of Siddhartha Gautama himself. Supposedly, and it's a big supposition because sources for Siddhartha's life are sketchy at best. Supposedly after his enlightenment experience, people noticed something was different about Siddhartha, and they asked him if he was some kind of a god. No, he replied. Are you a saint? they asked him then. No, Siddhartha replied again. Well then, what are you? It was pretty clear he was different from just about anyone else, so if he was not a god or a saint, then what? And Siddhartha replied, I'm awake. And that became his title, Buddha or the Awakened One. In other words, you're still a person, you're still human like everyone else. The only difference between a Buddha and an ordinary person is that most people go through life asleep, with their minds constantly lost in the past or future while a Buddha is fully awake in the present moment. So in a certain way, the enlightenment experience is not the ultimate goal, but a first step. Further insights of awakening are needed throughout life, and more importantly, the key element is figuring out how to bring the state of consciousness back to daily life. A famous Zen verse hints at this. It goes, What a miracle! I draw water and carry firewood. Now clearly drawing water and carrying firewood would have been some of the most ordinary daily activities just about everyone carried out. So in speaking of it as a miracle, this version tells us true miracles happen inside one's consciousness. And when that takes place, even the most ordinary activities seem wondrous and magical. True enlightenment, in this sense, is being awakened to the beauty of ordinary experience. In any case, after the night encounter with the crow, 
Ikkyu returned to the temple and had a discussion with Kazo about the koan he was working on. Kazo both praised and held him back at the same time. He said, This is the enlightenment of Emir Arhat. You're no master yet. In Buddhist lingo, an Arhat is one who is very advanced but still one step away from full Buddhahood. Ikkyu's reply was characteristically rebellious. Then I'm happy to be an Arhat, he said. I detest masters. Which is a pretty funny thing to say to your own master. Kazo found it funny and retorted, Ha! Huh, maybe you really are a master after all. Ikkyu celebrated by writing some verses that went like this. For ten years my mind was cluttered with passion and anger. Even this moment I still possess rage and violent emotions. Yet, the instant the crow laughed, an arhat rose up out of ordinary dust. In this morning sunshine, an illuminated face sings. Kazo would have loved nothing more than for Ikkyu to become his successor. The guy was ridiculously brilliant and his grasp of Zen was light years better than any of his other students. So Kazo once even told people that Ikkyu was more advanced on the path than he himself was. But there was a problem. Ikkyu was Ikkyu. Exhibit A of Ikkyu being Ikkyu is when Kazo tried to give him his certificate of enlightenment. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, through a certificate of enlightenment, a Zen master vouched that a certain student was the real deal and had achieved enlightenment. Receiving such a certificate was something that most students of Zen in those days lived for. It was both a great honor and a necessary document to begin climbing the Zen hierarchy. Think of it as the Buddhist equivalent of a spiritual PhD. Well, when Kazo gave Ikkyu his certificate of enlightenment, Ikkyu, despite deeply loving his teacher, refused it. Certificate of enlightenment, thought Ikkyu, as spirituality turned into some bureaucratic perversion, screw this. I don't want any part of it. Perhaps due to his previous teacher's influence, Ikkyu hated the very concept of a certificate of enlightenment and threw the paper on the floor when Kazo gave it to him. Kaz apparently didn't take it too bad, and supposedly said, Ikkyu's my true heir, but his ways are wild. Which is the understatement of the century. There's a tale that the certificate was saved, and years later the Prime Minister had come in possession of it and tried to give it to Ikkyu, only for Ikkyu to burn it while gleefully composing a verse that said, One of you saved my enlightenment paper. You pasted it back together, now watch me burn it once and for all. That was defiance with a capital D right there. Other monks may feel the need to hide their insecurities behind a piece of paper. Ikkyu needed no such things. Yozo, the guy who had been Kazo's main disciple before Ikkyus arrived and who had thrown dirty water on Ikkyu when he first showed up, was livid. He was in his early forties by then, he had diligently studied his whole life, he has been dutiful, obedient disciple, 
and now he saw this young guy steal his thunder and obtain a certificate of enlightenment when he still didn't have one. And worse of all, this punk was refusing the very honor that Yoz wanted to obtain more than anything. In doing this, Iki was clearly making a radical choice. The door was wide open for him to climb up the ladder of the religious hierarchy. But Iku chose to tell the Zen establishment of the day to go to hell, and he decided to create his own personal path instead. Despite this, he chose to stay by his teacher's side at a time when his teacher was affected by a prolonged illness. But by the time his teacher recovered, Iku began to spend increasingly more time away from the temple, traveling, exploring, meeting people, and generally having a blast going on adventures around the countryside. Contrary to what was customary for Zen monks, Iku wore his hair long and grew a scruffy beard, and he was often dressed poorly, even in formal occasions. There's actually a funny story about Iku and his tattered clothes. It is said that once E.Q. while dressed in his usual way, begged for food at the house of an aristocrat. He was poorly received and given scraps before being told to scram. On the following day, he showed up at a feast offered by the very same aristocrat, but now E.Q. was wearing the official robes of a high-ranking monk. As a result, E.Q. was promptly served and given generous portions of food. But then Iku removed his robe and folded it in front of the food. What are you doing? the nobleman asked him. To which Iku replied, The food clearly is for the robe, not for me. And with that he got up and left. On another occasion in 1423, Iku was reunited with his teacher Kazo at the main temple in Kyoto, the Daitokuji, at a ceremony for the death anniversary of Kazo's own teacher. All the abbots attending were dressed in colorful robes with ceremonial capes embroidered with gold. Iku showed up in plain black traveling clothes and straw sandals, the kind that were usually worn by beggars. Kazo scolded him, but Iku replied, My sincerity is the garment that I wear at this gathering. I don't ape the costumes of hypocritical priests. I'm sure a few monks spilled their drinks at that. Despite this, when someone asked Kazo who would be his, his successor, Kazo replied, the eccentric one, while pointing to EQ. But despite his wishes, Kazo was forced to recognize that Ikkyu didn't seem interested at all in taking over this role. Rather, he was getting wilder by the minute. In the mid-1420s, he even had a son with a lady he had met in the port city of Sakai. Many years later, his son named Jotei became a master of tea ceremony under the name Nambo, who became his father's disciple and lived with him and incidentally would be from this lineage that would come the most famous tea master of the era in the next generations. Speaking of family, in addition to having a son, around 1427, maybe 1428, Ikkyu's father, the retired emperor Gokomatsu, 
summoned him to his palace. Ikyu's half-brother, the current Emperor Shoko, had turned out to be eh, not fully mentally there, and on top of it he was terminally ill. Since he had no children, he felt to their father, Gokomatsu, to pick someone among the relatives as next in line for the throne. Considering how desperate Gokomatsu was to find someone, anyone, to become the next emperor, and considering that at this time he and Ikkyu had reconciled, it was quite realistic for Ikkyu to claim the throne that he wanted to. But much in the same way as he wasn't interested in becoming a high-ranking member of the Zen clergy, Ikkyu was equally uninterested in becoming emperor. What he did instead was to suggest a young, distant relative as the one who should be adopted and made emperor. Gokomatsu followed his son's advice, and so the distant cousin tapped by Ikkyu for the job became emperor under the name Go Hanazono who reigned from 1428 to 1467. In the meantime, feeling death approaching and coming to terms with the fact that Ikkyu wasn't going to accept taking over his position, Kazo finally gave Yozo the certificate of enlightenment Yozo had so badly wanted, just so that someone would keep the lineage alive. Not too long after this, Yozo took over as chief abbot of the main temple of Daitokuji in Kyoto. And maybe it was for the best. As John Covell puts it, an institution needs stable men. Eccentric geniuses can be dangerous. By 1428, Kazo, the man who had been Ikyu's teacher for so many years, died. But this time Ikkyu was in a much better psychological place and was not wrecked by his teacher's death as he had been when Master Kano had died. The rest of the country, however, was not as stable as Ikkyu's current mood. In 1428, the same year when Kazo passed on, bands of lower-class samurai joined local peasants in revolt, demanding cancellation of all debts. Interest rates were off the wall, quite often above 50%, and most people were drowning in poverty, crushed by the weight of heavy interests on debt. Ikkyu clearly sympathized with the rebels. He wrote supporting the call for cancellation of debts. In his own words, thieves don't rob poor houses, an individual's money is not the shogun's property. Calamity's origin lies hidden behind his virtuous face. Now a hundred thousand copper coins are worthless. Despite having little money himself, Ikkyo along with his friends tried to relieve poverty however they could. A monk friend of his, for example, would weave sandals and leave them by the roadside for anybody who might need them. Ikkyo would try to raise money from wealthy donors to give it away to those struggling. With each teacher dead, everything that bound him to a sedentary existence was no more. This phase of Ikkyu's life actually reminds me of the end of the masterpiece of literature that is The Call of the Wild by Jack London. There's a passage close to the end of the book that fits perfectly here. It goes, He walked to the center of the open space and listened. 
It was the call, the many-noted call, sounding more luringly and compelling than ever before. And as never before, he was ready to obey. John Thornton was dead, the last tie was broken. Men and the claims of men no longer bound him. This is exactly the place where EQ was. He had spent three decades in the highly regulated environment of Zen temples. For the last few years he had heeded the call of adventure only to regularly return to his teacher's temple. But now he no longer needed to return, he was completely free to do as he pleased. In the Zen community it was not unheard of for monks to spend some time wandering before settling down in monasteries and assume administrative functions. Ikkyo, however, had no interest in becoming an administrator, a bureaucrat, or a politician. Hell, clearly he had no interest even in becoming emperor when the opportunity had been clearly available. What he had interested in was experiencing life with no restrictions. Along the lines of Henry David Thoreau, Ikkyo wanted to, quote Thoreau himself, to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. As E.Q. himself wrote, a poet monk just follows nature without a set path. Then and now E.Q. would make periodic visits to Daitokuji, but most of the time he would be on the road. His rivalry with Yozo only got deeper over time. To E.Q. Yozo represented everything that was wrong with the Zen establishment and wanted to spend as little time as possible around him. And so there he was, the emperor's son, traveling in cheap robes and straw sandals, drinking sake with commoners, playing his bamboo flute, and writing poems on leaves that he would then abandon to float in the wind. As John Covell puts it, Ikkyu's lifestyle now had no regular pattern, no schedule, he was totally free. On occasion he was entertained by court nobles, at other times he begged for his supper by playing his flute. This doesn't mean he had given up on Zen, far from it. In his thinking it was the entire Zen establishment that had abandoned real Zen by turning it into a dogmatic parody of what he was supposed to be. Life in the temples was stifled by too many rules and not enough fresh air. The so-called professionals of Zen were, in Ikkyu's eyes, just a bunch of posers, too busy acting spiritual to be able to really take spirituality in its rawest forms. Some people believe Zen enlightenment could only be found among clouds of incense in silent meditation. Ikkyu, on the other hand, looked for Zen in the midst of daily life. Several lines from his writings hammer on this point. Studying text and stiff meditation can make you lose your original mind. A solitary tune by a fisherman, however, can be an invaluable treasure. Dusk rain on the river, the moon peeking in and out of the clouds. Elegant beyond words, he chants his songs night after night. Or in another passage, who needs the Buddhism of falsified masters? Me? I spent three decades alone in the mountains and solved all my koans there. 
living zen among the tall pines and the high winds. To you the best place for Zen practice was not some retreat away from worldly concerns, but right in the midst of the hustle and bustle of daily life. As he wrote, Crazy Cloud practices his own brand of Zen. Crazy Cloud being a nickname he had picked up along the way, which referred to his wild, wandering habits. Ikki enjoyed his own weirdness. In some way he reminds me of the figure of the Heoka among the Lakota people, a sacred clown who regularly breaks most social taboos, reminding people that life is more interesting outside the rules. Traditional biographies of Ikkyu tend to emphasize his Zen insights, but gloss over his sexual escapades. And man, there were a lot of sexual escapades in Ikkyu's life. Some of his disciples actually tried to destroy all of Ikkyu's poems that dealt with sex, sake drinking, or emotions, quote-unquote, unfit in a Zen priest, which is precisely the opposite of what Ikkyu would have wanted. Makes you wonder, did this guy even ever understand him at all? Because that's really not who he was. Speaking of emotions unfit in a Zen priest, consider a poem addressed to an unnamed woman in which E.Q. spoke of his heart breaking upon saying goodbye. Zen monks are supposed to be above such petty human feelings, and yet many surviving poems indicate E.Q. had strong emotions, but he never tried to conceal this as if this was something to be ashamed of. E.Q. made no secret of his emotions, and of what others would perceive as weaknesses. He was obviously an enthusiastic practitioner of a concept I deeply love, which is radical honesty. In order to live in a radically honest way, you have to be very comfortable in your own skin, since you are going to be unashamedly you in all circumstances. If people end up liking you, then they like you for who you truly are, since you refuse to censor yourself in order to impress them. In this regard, he was different, not just from most Zen folks in specific, but even from most Japanese poets in general. A lot of Japanese culture tends to value restrained emotions. Definitely not EQ. He made no secret of being a very intense human being, bursting with passion in everything he did. As one of his disciples said, EQ laughed heartily when he was happy and shouted mightily when angry. In many ways, his personality was very individualistic in a culture that tended to look down on individualism and praise conformity instead. Not that Ikkyu cared what the culture at large prescribed. He was perfectly happy carving his own path, regardless of what anyone thought, regardless of ending up at odds with the powers that be. In a context in which everyone wore a mask, he had an uncompromising commitment to be himself. Social conventions be damned. As John Covell writes, he was wholeheartedly himself every second, whether at the moment he was a priest or a lover. Before she goes on to note, one of the hallmarks of an enlightened person is to be truly himself, without subterfuge, all the time. 
So in light of this, it's really funny that most of his supporters try to edit the more scandalous aspects of his personality, showing that while they may have loved him, they didn't really get him. As Covell puts it, if the individual could not accept him as he was, Satori combined with wine shops and women, then that person did not understand the freedom at the very core of his Zen. Not being stupid, EQ was only too aware that even most of those close to him couldn't see life the way he did. As he wrote, My solitary flute sings of bitterness, almost beyond bearing. I'm like a barbarian in a remote place. Even at the crossroads, does anyone understand my music? Indeed, within the school of Zen, EQ has few real friends. Which kind of reminds me of a line from Friedrich Nietzsche in Das Bog Zarathustra. You will always be wild and strange among men. Wild and strange, even when they love you. That's a great line right there. You'll always be wild and strange among men. Wild and strange, even when they love you. But it would be wrong if from these we got the impression that EQ was an antisocial, melancholic freak. Quite the opposite, actually. He was very gregarious, and due to his natural charisma, he attracted people who loved to be in his company. But you know how it is. Just because you are the life of the party doesn't mean you don't feel lonely sometimes. Speaking of party, let's turn to what I promised at the beginning of the episode. Let's look at what was so scandalous about EQ that troubled even those disciples who loved him most. So break out the wine, light some candles, let's play some Marvin Gaye. Either let's get it on or sexual healing would be my choice, but I'm not picky. Whatever gets you in the mood. This episode is about to get steamy. You know when in Game of Thrones, Tyrion Lannister says, and I quote, Drinking and lust, no man can match me in these things. I'm the god of tits and wine. Let's just say that Tyrion would have gotten along famously with EQ. If you read EQ's writings, three main themes emerge. In no particular order, his passion for Zen, his ferocious criticism of the corruption of the Zen establishment, and sex and love. And while we are at it, drinking sake, of which he was quite fond. And the man was not hiding behind convoluted metaphors when talking about sex. On the contrary, he could get pretty graphic. EQ's poetry is full of sentences like Thirsty, you dream of water. Cold, you want fire. Not me. I want the firm warm breasts and wetness of a woman. Or even more graphically, Eight inches strong, it is my favorite thing. If I'm alone at night, I embrace it fully. A beautiful woman hasn't touched it in ages. Within my underwear, there is an entire universe. Thank you for you. This is probably the way most people would not expect a Japanese monk from the 1400s to write. And in truth, probably no other Japanese monk from the 1400s wrote like this. But that was EQ. 
Now let's put this in context a little bit. Something as vast and diverse as Buddhism doesn't have a single attitude towards sexuality. Some variations of Buddhism advocate celibacy. Others are very sexually liberated. But let's just say that many Buddhist sects in Ikkyu's times believed to different degrees of severity that sex could be an obstacle to spiritual development because it ties you to this world, to it creates attachments. This notion of sex as antithetical to spiritual development is actually fairly widespread in many religions around the world. Think of St. Paul advocating of celibacy, for example. Some groups within Buddhism felt the same way. Now, what Buddha really did or did not say on this topic is anybody's guess. There are traditions attributing to Buddha ultra-puritanical quotes and others presenting a more balanced approach. So among these contradictory sources, different Buddhists went with whichever suited them best. But bottom line, a lot of Buddhism in Ikkyu's times paid lip service to the notion that lust and grief inevitably went together, which is why some sects prescribed celibacy for monks and nuns to avoid the trappings of sex and for them to have more energy to dedicate to spirituality. Some Buddhist teachers even flat out preached that enlightenment and sex were incompatible. Since most monks struggled with this and could not shake off their sexual feelings, often they began to grow resentful of women and blame them, with some Buddhists even suggesting women could not achieve enlightenment. This blaming of women because of one's weird hang-ups about sex is again something I found in studying the literature of most of the world's religions. And for that matter, I don't even have to study the literature of any religion. I can just look around and in modern society, I still see that a lot. But before I get lost into a tangent, let's stick to Ikkyu's immediate cultural context. Priests typically learn to avoid women and sue them as dangerous. Some monks wouldn't even receive food from women since it would be too risky for them to fall into temptation. Now, in reality, many monks and priests behaved very differently from what they preach. Quite a few kept concubines, but in secret. Many, as it often happens in monastic orders, turned to homosexuality instead, something that may have been part of Ikkyu's own experience when he was young. Homosexuality was actually rather common in this period in Japanese history. The general belief was that marriage with women was for having kids, but true passion was with young men. Now, that concept was very widespread among the samurai class. Even shoguns like Yoshimitsu and Yoshinori and Yoshimasa had boy lovers. Many samurai and monks both idealize homosexuality and despise women. To say that Ikkyu disagree with this view is putting it mildly. Ikkyu dismissed the strict mainstream Zen view of sex as a superstition created by unstable minds afraid of being truly alive. Sexuality to him was in no way an obstacle to developing compassion and enlightenment. 
and contrary to the norms of his times, he would accept women as students and view them as equals. As radical as some of these stances were in the context of the times, EQ went much, much further. EQ preached that as long as you are not hurting anyone in the process, sex then was just great. Now, the first part of that sentence is important to remember. Non-injury being a key Buddhist concept, not hurting anyone. Also, it's an important one because it's not typical. You know, people who break commonly held rules about sex as much as EQ did often end up with predatory tendencies and they take advantage of people. EQ did not. And that right there makes all the difference in the world. Taking pleasure in the body to him was a natural, healthy antidote to the mental neurosis afflicting most of the so-called spiritual people. Not only was it not antithetical to spiritual development, but it could actually be an essential part of it, according to EQ. In a series of statements that were guaranteed to make the blood pressure of most Zen folks shooting through the roof, EQ wrote things like The autumn breeze of a single night of love is better than a hundred thousand years of sterile city meditation. Or, even more bluntly, don't hesitate, get laid, that's wisdom. Sitting around chanting sutras, that's crap. (laughs) When you stop to consider that sitting in meditation and chanting sutras were some of the main activities practiced in Zen temples, well, then maybe you can get a taste of just how radical EQ's writings were. Even referring to his own enlightenment experience, he wrote, The crow's cry was okay, but one night with a lovely courtesan opened a wisdom deeper than whatever that bird said. I don't know, man. Even reading this stuff makes me crack up. He's just a funny guy. The way he saw things, any enlightenment that was born from staying away from the intensity of the human experience, including sex, was no enlightenment at all, just a form of escapism. Contrary to the conventional Buddhist wisdom of the times, EQ felt passion and enlightenment went hand in hand, for enlightenment was nothing other than daily life, experience in all of its intensity with full awareness. By awaking us to the here and now through intense pleasure, sex could be considered no less than the holiest of rituals, and an orgasm could be as powerful and deep as the most solitary mystical vision. And so EQ carried on plenty of affairs wherever he went, and even regularly visited brothels. But unlike those priests who try to hide their identity when visiting sex workers, EQ kept his Zen robes on and was unapologetic about it. In one of his poems he wrote, With a young beauty, I'm engrossed in fervent love play. We sit in the pavilion, a pleasure girl and this Zen monk. Enraptured by hugs and kisses, I certainly don't feel as if I'm burning in hell. What's radical about him is not what he was doing, because lots and lots of people were doing the same. What's radical is that he was unashamed about it. A friend of mine, 
Chris Ryan, the author of Sex at Dawn, referred to himself as a shame exorcist. I get the feeling that Chris would dig EQ a lot. The point of EQ's erotica escapades and wild adventures was to suggest that the sacred was nothing other than regular life experience with 100% awareness. Spirituality Wiki was a way of looking at the world, not the result of what you do or don't do. Playing with your kids could be as spiritual as meditating in the mountains. Sexual marathons were not any less spiritual than studying Buddhist texts. The truly enlightened state, according to Wiki, had no use for the artificial separation between sacred and profane. Or perhaps sake drinking and inordinate amount of sex did not need any justification at all, other than the fact that they were a whole of a lot of fun. EQ didn't give a rat's ass about what the religious authorities of his days thought of him anyway. In one of his poems, EQ wrote, A madman floating on a crazy wind, wandering here and there, admits brothels and wine shops. Is there an enlightened priest who can match me even for a single word? Most Zen priests back then were shocked that EQ would be doing openly what many of them only did undercover. Famous Zen masters of the past, like Rinzai for example, could get away saying unconventional things because they were dead and safely stuck in the ancient past. But it was scandalous to actually do that in the present day. Maybe they shouldn't have been that surprised, because Buddhist history contains quite a few examples of folks as sexually free as Ikki was. When asked why he had refused an invite to court by the emperor, Chan Master Tao Chi had replied, drinking in the wine shops and sleeping in the brothels. That is where I practice best, not in the palace. Or consider the life of a contemporary of Ikkyu, 15th century Tibetan Buddhist master, Drukpa Konli. It is said that during the course of a public debate with doctors in Buddhist philosophy, Drukpa bowed neither to the doctors nor to the main shrine, but prostrated himself before a pretty girl sitting on the steps. The monks protested, so Konli pointed to her crotch, saying, as the source of all that comes into this world, she, not your arid words or a building of stone, represents the real mother of wisdom. Drukpa is still to this day considered a patron saint within the nation of Bhutan. His first question wherever he went was, where can I find the best beer and the prettiest women? His daily routine included food, beer, music and song, sex and meditation. Women supposedly found him irresistible, sometimes having sex with him even in public places. And legend has it that some of them became enlightened after sex with him. His penis, I kid you not, I'm not making this up, became known as the, the flaming thunderbolt of wisdom. That's life goals right there and people in Bhutan still paint it on the outside walls of their homes to ward off evil spirits so yeah you got the picture 
I'm beginning to be mildly concerned that this whole steamy discussion of sex may distract a good percentage of my listeners. The man who helped me discover EQ, good old Tom Robbins, once wrote, From an author's perspective, writing about sex is risky. Because if you write well enough, evocatively enough, vividly enough, you make the reader want to put the book aside and go get laid. I have the sneaky suspicion that perhaps the same thing happens to at least some podcast listeners. So maybe it's not a bad idea to break this episode in two and let you go to the care of business. Worry not, this is not going to be a long wait. Part two will be released. I haven't decided yet. It's either the following day or at most a week away. So they're going to be pretty much back to back. And while the sex one of the most celebrated love stories in Japanese history, a revolution in Japan's cultural traditions, and all around the spiritual mayhem, will still very much be part of our tale. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I promise you an announcement and it's coming. Let me just get through the ads first and thank you to the sponsors. And as soon as I'm done with that, I'm gonna tell you guys how things are going to change for History on Fire starting soon. History on Fire is sponsored by 4hims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. At 4HIMS you can find well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescription to help fight ED. There are no waiting room, you don't have to wait for doctor visits, you don't need to stay in line. In other words, these guys save a whole bunch of hours and you can do that by just going to 4HIMS.com. 
you answer a few quick questions and uh, you get your confidential review out of the way and products will be shipped directly to your door. The first month is just $5. We'll get you started for just 5 bucks while supply lasts and of course subject to doctor approval. Restrictions apply, so the Wixie website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to a doctor or a pharmacy. Instead, go to 4hims.com forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com forward slash history and the number 5. Last time, 4hims.com forward slash history and the number 5. History on Fire is also sponsored by Blue Apron. One day, all good things come to an end. I'm sure one day at some point in the future I will no longer be sponsored by Blue Apron and I will cry bitter tears because these guys are just amazing. You can create healthy habits this year by learning how to cook at home and working with Blue Apron give you that chance. They offer a whole variety of meals including kid-approved family plans, vegetarians plans and their brand new WW Freestyle Plan. Speaking from personal experience, uh, it's really actually easy to learn how to cook uh, what seem like complicated recipes that I, you never think to try before. To start making delicious, bragworthy meals at home without the hassle, try Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get $60 off when you visit blueapron.com forward slash on fire. That's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. History on Fire is also sponsored by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections such as the 100 most popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of History on Fire a free stock like Apple, Ford or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at onfire.robinhood.com Again, that's onfire.robinhood.com I want to say a big thank you to Team Evolve Recruitment. These guys are fans of the podcast and they have been sweet enough to sponsor this episode and the next one. Team Evolve is a nationwide recruiting team located in Southern California that focuses on building up startups in various industries and they have clients working on bleeding edge technology in the fields of cybersecurity, renewable energy, autonomous vehicles, advanced robotics, deep and machine learning, virtual reality and much more. They have clients and candidates all over the US and Canada. So wherever you are in the Northern Hemisphere, they have elite candidates and companies you want to see. 
Whether you are a startup or a talented engineer or a recruiter looking to join a rapidly growing team of recruitment professionals, if you are looking for a personal touch to show you your next opportunity or an elite eye in your next hire, reach out to the team at www.teamevolving.com. Again, that's teamevolving.com. A funny story about the next sponsor I want to mention. Uh, the sponsor is Magellan TV, and these guys are a new type of documentary streaming provider. So they bring uh, some of the best documentaries from around the globe on one service. Now, here is where the story gets weird. Is I got this request and I checked them out and they look very legit. So I was like, yeah, sure, I can. we can set up a sponsorship. But then, of course, I started looking really deep into it and I started watching the documentaries. And I'm so short on time right now. I'm trying to keep up with the release schedule, make sure I get all my research done and everything. But once I started looking at the documentaries they have, needless to say, I got lost in a black hole of watching documentary after documentary because they have so much incredible stuff. They have, well, needless to say, since it catches my interest, a very wide range of history documentaries available. I watch a whole bunch about Queen Elizabeth, fascinating figure by the way, who gave me some ideas for future episodes. I watch about Tokugawa Japan and what led to the creation of the Tokugawa dynasty. I watch, there's so much good stuff and there's a lot more that I want to check out. They're not just about history, they also have nature documentaries, science, space, you name it, lots of other things. So if you do dig documentaries, check them out. They are really good. The whole service has been built by documentary filmmakers and I really, really dig them. I cannot recommend them enough. I know I'm going to, it's going to be a struggle to stay focused on my work and not get sidetracking watching them all because there's so much good stuff. They're now compatible with Roku, iOS, Android, a whole bunch of other things, so they have the ability to cast on some of the most popular streaming devices. You can watch anytime on your television, laptop, mobile device, you name it, so you can start your free trial today at MagellanTV.com forward slash History on Fire. And seriously, trying it for free with the kind of documentaries they have? I mean, even if you decide that you don't want to sign up later on, try it for free. Just give it a shot, try them out. It's MagellanTV.com forward slash History on Fire. Okay, guys, announcement time. So I'm going to repeat this, well, I'm going to say it in this episode, I'm going to repeat it in the next one, which is coming out uh, probably by next week. I think there will be no more than a week gap between these two episodes. So that's good news. Uh, What's going to change starting soon? Well, I had to do some serious soul searching because between my teaching job and History on Fire, I have been working probably about 14-15 hours a day, 7 days a week, with no breaks for longer than I can remember. And I really, you know, it doesn't matter how fun work is, nothing is fun when you do it for that long, that intense. Problem is I'm trying to do too many things, and the reality of it is that as fun as I've had with doing History on Fire in this fashion, there's no way that I could keep up the production with the money as it was coming in. You know, I've been trying ads and a lot of people are annoyed with having too many ads. I've tried Patreon and people don't like Patreon as a corporation and they don't want to do that. 
I've tried uh, donations via PayPal and that. Basically, you know, everything has helped and I thank you 10,000 times to anybody who has contributed in any way, shape or form on keeping the lights on and history on fire. But in terms of longevity, it really cannot last with this level of intensity with 15 episodes a year, according to the old model. So what changed was this. I received an offer from a company called Luminary. That's a new podcasting platform that's going to be offering exclusive show from people like me. They've signed a bunch of other people, people like Conan O'Brien, Malcolm Gladwell, Trevor Noah, Russell Brand, a bunch of others. And basically, this is going to be a subscription service. Uh, they will operate on, I believe the price is $7.99 per month. I think you can go down to $6.99 if you sign up soon in the pre-sale period to have access to all of their shows, including mine, of course. Now, it is what I've asked to do, because, of course, I did not like the idea of History on Fire just completely disappearing from the free system as it existed, and they've been very cool about it, they understand, so I will keep some eight episodes of the old ones freely available on iTunes, Teacher, and all the other platforms. And also I requested that Dan Carlin close. You know how my friend and podcasting genius Dan Carlin releases two episodes per year? I figure, okay, I will release two episodes per year for free. Freely available on all the traditional platforms, you know, whichever way you're getting History on Fire now, you can still get two episodes a year that way. So please stay subscribed wherever you are so that you can still... Get the, get the news when they come out and you get those episodes free. But in order to keep up production, if I am going to do 15 episodes, then the other 13, I will do them exclusively through Luminary. So if you are, uh, if you are signed up and subscribed through them, paying their monthly fee, boom, you get 13 more. If you don't feel like paying money or whatever reason you can't, well, then you can still get two free episodes, but... I felt that this is the necessary choice I had to make in order to keep History on Fire going at the rate I was doing. So the good news is I will still be able, contrary to all expectations, at least my expectations based on my current work, I will be able to produce 15 episodes per year because Luminar is basically giving me the resources to allow me to get help from other people, not with History on Fire itself so much, but with 10,000 other things that I have to worry about every day. I will have a couple of friends who are gonna, I'm gonna be able to pay them to help me out with these things, kind of lessen the load in other areas of my life so that I can focus 100% on History on Fire. So the good news is yes, 15 episodes. The other side of it, of course, is that I'm only gonna put two episodes for free per year and the other 13 are going to be with Luminary. So I really appreciate your understanding for why this move is necessary. You know, with the audience I currently have, had everybody donated uh, $1 per episode or even something like $5 throughout the whole year, I would have never had to switch. But the reality of the free podcasting system is that that's not how it works, you know. Those of you guys who have supported are absolute heroes of mine, but realistically, that's probably like 1% of the people who listen. So with that in mind, this change is necessary. Uh, the place to check it out and see if you are interested is luminary.link forward slash history. Again, that's luminary, 
link forward slash history. Of course, I'm going to put a link to these in the episode notes where you can check them out. And I hope you guys will join me and follow me on this experiment as we try to keep producing top-notch history content every month for you. So to recap, you're still getting this episode freely. You're gonna get another episode in just one week from today. After that, you're gonna get two episodes over the next year, unless you jump in on Luminary subscription, in which case you're going to get 13 more spread, more or less regularly, the same way I've been releasing so far. But that's just gonna happen through Luminary. So with that in mind, thank you so much. See you on the other side.